certainly prophetic events are on a countdown to Christ's return. I think we all know that. You know, brethren, I've said for the last few years that it is a shame President Bush means well, but he's trying to convert the whole world to democracy. And it's not going to work. It's not working out. And just the other day, as you know, they had 80 more people slaughtered over there. They bombed this mosque and uh, where the Shiites were. The Muslims and, si and the uh, Sunnis, I mean, and Shiites are beginning to have a sectarian war. It's like a civil war going on, and we can't stop it, and it's going to get worse. The whole situation is continuing to deteriorate. The national budget picture is beginning to deteriorate even more, and the dollar is going to came up shortly, but it's going to start back down again, lower than it has ever, ever been. And we're going to live to see a lot of things as God breaks the pride of our power around the world. Some of the newscasters were commenting that President Bush is going into the meetings in Korea and China with a very weakened hand because the people are openly attacking him now in the Congress more than ever, as you know. So it's a sad thing about our nation, but it has to happen and it's going to get much worse. But we in God's church in the meantime can lift up our heads because we know the purpose of life and we know the outcome and we have a big mission and God wants us to fulfill that mission. God will bless each one of us, as Mr. Armstrong said, to the degree that we have our hearts in God's work and certainly in God's will and want to fulfill God's will in every way. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And here's a very, very basic thing that we need to review quite often in our own study and our thinking. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. Paul wrote, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. He wanted to come and see Timothy in person. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Well, we tried to give that, take that title when we had to change our name, as you know. And, of course, it was already taken by some small group, but we weren't able to buy them out or to get it. So we call ourselves the living church of God. But, of course, the Bible says the church of the living God. And they made essentially the same thing. But that is one of the names. Of course, Church of God, Church of God, 12 times in the New Testament. Sometimes it's just the Church of God or the Churches of God or the Church of the Living God and different variations of it. But it's always the Church of God, which is the pillar and bulwark. This word uh, ground is kind of hard to understand. What do you mean ground? It means better bulwark. A bulwark is a great big barrier to keep people from attacking, to protect a fort or protect a city or something like that. So the church of God is the pillar upholding and protecting like a bulwark the truth. That's what we stand on, the truth. The whole thing is the truth. Some people said, let's just stay in the former association because we were there. No, you've got to go where the truth is. I came out of Methodism, not because I liked Mr. Armstrong's personality, not because the work was so big or something, because it wasn't. I came because of the truth, and so did most of you. And that's a very, very important thing to constantly think about. Where is the truth? If any one of us should turn aside or if I should turn aside or some future leader and lead the church, the living church of God, away from the Sabbath, the holy days, and the entire way of life, as the Tkachas have done with Worldwide, you ought not stay with us. I'm just telling you that right now. You better go where the truth is preached. It's not a personality contest. It's not a contest of where is everybody. It's not a contest of where do we have a nice social life. It's where is the truth? 
where is the whole counsel of God being preached more fully? It's where the whole work of God and every phase of that work is being done more fully. And it's where, of course, they have the government of God taught and practiced within the church more correctly and more fully because, as Mr. Herbert Armstrong said again and again and again, he said the whole thing is the government of God. Now, he meant then in a certain context. We could also say, I think Paul said at one time, first, take the shield of faith. I think that's in Ephesians, talking about the spiritual armor. In certain contexts, faith is most important. Then Paul wrote, of course, in 1 Corinthians 13 about love, and he concluded about talking about faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And in that kind of context, love is the most important force in the universe. If God didn't love us, if God didn't make us in His image, if God didn't continue to love us and watch over us, we'd be in trouble. So love is the most important single thing, of course. But at any rate, there are different, of course, categories and different ways of looking at those things. But the truth is a very, very important thing. And we in this church are intent on maintaining and preserving and even restoring that truth. Notice now back in Jude, Jude chapter 1, Actually, there is only one chapter, so you don't have to search for chapter 1. I automatically say chapter 1 sometimes. Jude, a servant or bond slave, a doulos, a bond slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So Jude was a brother, a half-brother of Jesus Christ in the flesh, frankly, when you understand it. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you. Exhorting means, you know, you better ought to. Really trying to stir them up. Exhorting you to, to contend earnestly. Contend means to fight. Contend means to struggle. And sometimes we have to fight. Sometimes we have to struggle to restore and to maintain the full truth of God because this world around us is going crazy. Most of you know that, but they are. They're going completely haywire, away further and further from God's law, God's way, the whole purpose of human existence. It is a terrible thing. But we are to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all, notice that, the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. That true faith, that true way of God, that true approach to God was once for all delivered to the saints. That say it was given to them and then it's to be changed or modified or done away later. No, it was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. We've experienced that in our modern time with men who crept into the worldwide church of God, subtly took it over, and not so subtly, frankly, and then began to simply expunge everything that Mr. Armstrong ever did, ever taught, so that they even had erased the footsteps of Dr. Hay and Mr. Dick Armstrong and the other pioneer students. They have, they have simply taken out the stream. There's no reason to. They just took out the stream next to the library building where Grove Terrace used to be, or where Grove Street, I mean. They've done everything they could to completely destroy every vestige of the memory of God's servant who restored the truth in his time more than any man had done for hundreds of years. There's a bitter resentment and hate in the heart of most of those leaders or they would not have done that. 
and I know that, and know that I know that. Certain men had crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace, God's mercy for us, if we repent from our sins, turned the grace of our God into license. License means you just can do whatever you want to. License just as well, don't worry, don't get too excited, don't be too uptight, let's just water things down and we don't have to keep God's law anymore, and so on. And deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. How do they do that? Well, they do that by denying everything Christ taught, as Jesus said in Luke six forty six. Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? That's how you deny Christ, by teaching against what he actually taught. And the main thing he actually taught, of course, was God's law, God's way of life, God's commandments. So, brethren, this verse 3 here, that we're to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints, who were the saints at the beginning. They were the original apostles and the others converted and taught by those men who were the foundation, part of the foundation of God's church. Christ being, of course, the chief cornerstone because the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So we need to realize that. And I want to get back to this subject again, which is so very basic. I talked about it, as Mr. Ames said, in the Council of Elders. Brethren, we have a commission, when we understand it, as Jude gave it here in verse 3, to restore apostolic Christianity. As you know, I wrote a whole booklet on that. Restoring apostolic Christianity. I'll be referring to that some here. And I hope all of you who haven't read that carefully in recent months or years that you will get it and read it again. It is a key. It is a foundation. It is a basic thing to which we need to refer again and again and again. Not because I wrote it. Mr. Armstrong might have done a better job if he'd written it. He talked about the principle, but he didn't just write something specifically about that. It's the truth that's there. And so that's part of our mission. As you know, that's one of the seven missions that we have. Restore apostolic Christianity. Apostolic Christianity, brethren, is the entire way of life. And you can go through the book of Acts. It talks about this way and that way four or five times. And it was a way of life within Judaism at first. They thought it was just another sect of the Jews. And gradually as the Jews persecuted uh, the believers in Christ, they had to separate physically. But at first, the Roman authorities and even many Jews simply thought of it as a different sect. They had the Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and others. And they thought it was simply another sect of the Jews. It took them many years, decades, and to some extent hundreds of years in some cases before the whole thing got separated because they were keeping God's laws. They kept the Sabbath. They kept the holy days. History book after history book shows that, not just the Bible. And if you get this book, Restoring Apostolic Christianity, if you don't have one, certainly pick one up or write for one and go by the office and get one. And please reread it. I want to sign you brethren here and all you brethren around the world. I ask you to do that. I ask you to do that. Study this booklet and you'll see why as we go on. This is basic. This is a handbook. This is what you have to know and ought to be able to refer to. And throughout this book, you'll find reference after reference after reference to respected historians who acknowledge that the whole way of God, 
the way of Christ, at least, they acknowledge that, and the way of the original church has been changed. They know that. They don't always call it the way of God, but they'll acknowledge that today's Christianity is vastly different, using one of their words, vastly different than the Christianity of Christ and the apostles. So the original way of life is apostolic Christianity. What was that based upon? Well, of course, it was based on God's law, as you know, and that's so very, very important. Uh, it was based on God's word, the Bible. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. It was based on God's law. And we're going to see some about that from a specific point of view. I'm not going to dwell a lot on it because you're familiar with it so much. And it was based upon the example, the example of Christ and the original apostles. They set an example. And of course, the whole way of life was exemplified, I think, in a very fine way within the time he had just one aspect of it by Mr. Lyons in his fine sermonette where he talked about this kind of respect for parents. And there's a whole way of life, the family, child-rearing, the love and respect of a man and woman for each other in marriage, the whole principle of giving, helping, serving, that you're married for life. You make a covenant before your Creator to stay with each other until death do you part when you understand marriage. And when you're baptized, you're making a covenant with your Creator to literally give your life to God and not count it your life anymore, but count that Jesus Christ has bought and paid for you and you belong to Him. Some of you made that covenant not really understanding it. Maybe you didn't mean it. And some of you here, some of you around the world may need to be rebaptized if that is the case. Don't be afraid. Don't take baptism carelessly and just go get dunked every few months. But on the other hand, if you realize you've never really been conquered by God, you may need to do that. But nevertheless, that's a little digression there. Apostolic Christianity is based on God's Word. It's based on God's law and statutes and judgments which fell out an entire way of life and the example of Christ and the apostles. You know, in the, um, after the conference here of the evangelist, I had all the men, I had Monica send out to all of our council members an article that came out several years ago in Christianity Today magazine talking about the Mormons and how, how can a uh, false religion be so successful? That was the title, an interesting title. How can a false religion be so successful? That's what they said. But they described how the Mormons have big families and nice family life and clean cut and wholesome and all kinds of activities and so on. And the people overlook all the rest of it, apparently, because most people are spiritually blinded and they don't really study the Bible. They don't really study this book. They just kind of go along with various things and ideas and feelings and emotions and their friends or whatever. And, of course, the Mormons are about as way off as you can get, frankly. They're even further away from the Bible than the evangelical Protestants because they have the whole Book of Mormon, a sort of a second New Testament, and they have this book that this Joseph Smith claimed he found under a tree stump or something in upper New York State. And strangely, this book that he got in the mid-1800s was written by an angel, Moroni, he said, written in 1611 English. Apparently, God doesn't know modern English. He had to write in 1611 English. It was an immediate revelation, supposedly, right then. All kinds of strange things. You know, they talk about being out on Kolob. They invent names, and you're, you're, a, you're a god, sort of, out there. Then you transmigrate through human flesh, and then you go out, and you rule over another planet. And if you have enough children, they can be part of your kingdom later on. 
So the early Mormons had many wives and so they could have more people in their kingdom. It's just a whole bunch of stuff that's just strange, absolutely obscene compared to the Bible. But the thing of it is, brethren, there are now about 12 million Mormons. Think about it. They are bigger than the Methodists. They're bigger than the Presbyterians. They're bigger than the Lutherans. They're bigger than lots of different denominations. They are one of the fastest growing major religions. And they're making huge inroads in Mexico and Central and South America and Africa particularly. So they have all these strange ideas. But one of the key doctrines that helps people come with them, this article brought out in Christianity Today two or three times, is the fact that they stress getting back to the original Christianity. They keep mentioning that, that that is a key thing. That really strikes a chord with people. We're getting back to what the original Christianity was. We're getting back to the Christianity of the apostles. We're getting back to the Christianity originally given by Christ. And yet they're doing no such thing. They completely pervert that Christianity in every possible way. I'm not trying to just make fun of them, but we do need to warn you about such heresies, and that is a major heresy. Strange one. Strange that anyone would fall for it, and yet about 12 million human beings have done that. Think about it. Yet their key, one of the key things they use to get people interested is that they're getting back to the original Christianity. Well, that's something, frankly, we really are doing. And if some of you find some way we're not doing that, I want you to bring it to me. Please do write me or send me an email or talk to me. We want to do that in every way we can. By original Christianity, I don't mean that we wear sandals and ride donkeys. You know what I mean? The spiritual matters. In the spiritual way, we need to get back to original Christianity. And we're doing that, I sincerely feel, more than any group on the face of the earth. And so we need to stress that. We need to talk about it. But they claim they're restoring apostolic Christianity and millions are deceived and being deceived by that false claim. So we're really doing that and we must begin to let others know that. And I want you brethren around the world to think about that. Again, to reread this booklet, Restoring Apostolic Christianity. Go over a number of times, maybe mark key passages, talk about it. And when new people, your neighbors, your friends at work, ask you, why do you believe what you believe? God says, be willing to give, be ready to give an answer. Say, we're getting back, not to some strange thing, uh, you know, Harry or Mary or whoever the person is. We're actually not having some other outside the Bible books or pamphlets or ideas that are from a totally different source as so many people do. We're simply getting back to what is revealed right in the Bible as to what Jesus really did do and did teach. And there are hundreds of respected historians who acknowledge many of the points. In fact, indirectly, all of them acknowledge most of the points. They know the early Christians kept the Sabbath day. They know the early Christians kept the annual holy days. They know the early Christians really tried to live by God's law. They know the early Christians as uh, even the uh, great uh, historian uh, who wrote about the fall of the Roman Empire wrote, you know, that the early Christians believed in a 7,000 year plan. And at the end of that seven, at the end of 6,000 years, Christ would come with the saints, a band of glorious saints, and he would set up a government on this earth and so on. They believed all that. And Edward Gibbon wrote in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, one of the most famous histories in modern times, that very fact. 
in that chapter, and I perhaps have quoted that in here. I've quoted that a number of times, and many of us have down through the years in our writings. He knew that. He was a secular historian, but they knew those things. So we are really doing those things. Notice First Peter, if you would. Turn to First Peter now, just back a couple of pages here, probably in your Bible. First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. I'm going to look for the T. Seeking ye shall find, and I found it. <laughs> First Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading here in verse 13 just to kind of get the story flow. Peter writes to the Christians, Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? We're supposed to become followers of Christ and the apostles. But even if, and certainly that may occur, especially toward the end, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason. You say, why do you believe? Where do you get your crazy ideas? We don't understand. We'll say John or Mary or Joanne, whatever their name is. We don't have some crazy ideas by some book. You don't need to say who it is, but you know, the Seventh-day Adventists have have uh, this uh, woman, White, uh, Ellen G. White, who had all these strange... Uh, uh, she was, frankly, kind of schizophrenic when you read about her. But she had all kinds of strange ideas and wrote them down. She happened to know about the Sabbath-day Sabbath, which she learned from the Church of God. If you studied that whole Church of God movement, and the Sabbath came out of that movement. But they have all her stuff and follow it. She had all these weird ideas about the fact the saints won't be on earth like Christ said during the millennium. They'll be up in heaven going over the books for a thousand years. They have the investigative judgment. And I guess by her teaching, you and I are up here going over Joe and uh, Joe uh, sinned and did this and that and Joanne sinned and did this. And we've got to judge their position and sit there for a thousand years <laughs> having the investigative judgment. Well, that was her idea. And here you have all these millions of Adventists following her completely outside the Bible ideas. And the Mormons had these complete outside the Bible ideas. As you know, the whole Catholic thing came down from ancient pa- paganism. And if you read that booklet, it shows how the two Babylons, ancient Babylon, with its uh, so-called celibate priesthood and the idea of the, of course, uh, the uh, 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 immortality of the soul and all those other things they had, and that came right on down, and they had their nuns, and they had their virgins, and the whole thing was recreated in the Catholic Church. And much of that was brought right over into Protestantism, their idea of Sunday, the day of the sun, the sole dia, and the pagan holidays brought right on over from Catholicism into Protestantism, and the whole idea of an immortal soul, and you go off to heaven with nothing to do, and you don't have to obey God's law. That whole concept, the two Babylons, the ancient Babylon and the modern Babylon. But the world doesn't understand that. So you've got to be willing, be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Not the wrong kind of fear, but, you know, meekness and respect, let's say. So you've got to do that. And how do you do that? You need to study the Bible most of all, of course. And I would encourage all of you here, you brethren, the world. One of the greatest legacies Mr. Donna Gwynn left to the Church of God, he left so many, but one of them is that Bible study course. That is a wonderful course. And if you get that course and really study it, I don't mean just skim it, but look up the Scriptures and go through it, it will greatly increase the depth 
of your Bible knowledge and Bible understanding. But he didn't have time or dwell on this aspect here. And this, of course, is a tremendously important thing, too. Not as important as the course, but that one thing to talk to outsiders about this key. You need to study this. And it's not near as long as going through the whole course, but I would study it, go over it several times, mark it, practice it, talk to outsiders about it, and be sure you understand this concept about giving a reason for the hope that is in you. And again, as I said, you can tell them, John or Mary, look, we're not trying to refer to some other person's books or ideas or what the pagans did, and now we'll do that. We're basing what we teach directly on what the Bible says, what Jesus did do, what the early apostles did do, and what the true church of God did do for many generations. And there are hundreds of scholars, among them Catholic scholars, in fact, who acknowledge most, if not all, of those things. And they do. They realize that. So you do need to think about how to answer the people when they ask you about what you believe and why. And I hope all of you will get and really study this booklet. Again, I ask all of you brethren here, all of you brethren around the world to really get out this booklet or get another copy if you need to or get an extra copy. And I hope our lady people send it out. I want everyone to have maybe an even extra one if you would use it and give them out. If you have friends or neighbors who say, well, I'd like a copy of that. See, we have a whole book that explains that concept. We in the council decided that we're going to ask all of you brethren to get more involved. That was another thing we decided. And you can begin to get more involved. Talk to your workmates. Talk to your neighbors. Talk to your relatives. Talk to your friends. Don't try to cram the truth down your throat, their throat. <laughs> Mr. Armstrong was absolutely right in telling us not to do that. But I think we've gone to the opposite extreme. And some of us are afraid to say anything to anyone. And God tells us, no, we should be ready to give an answer. So let's do that. And one of the key things you really can refer them to, one of the best things is this booklet, Restoring Apostolic Christianity, because that gives the whole picture of why we believe what we believe, you see, in an overall big picture way, based not just on the Bible, but on quote after quote after quote from respected historians that the world even acknowledges are respected and so on. And of course, if they are interested in prophecy, why... Mr. Gwynne's booklet on, on American Britain and the United States and Great Britain and Britain and Bible prophecy, that's a tremendous key. That was one of the most important booklets Mr. Armstrong ever wrote on that topic, and it is for us too. Mr. Gwynne wrote our very fine booklet on that, and then the booklet we have on 14 signs announcing Christ's return. Lots of people like that approach, and they want to write and see what that is. People are always interested. Or Mr. Ames has found this tape on the day of the Lord and prophecy. And other, we may have a booklet on that later on. And things of that sort are very popular, very helpful. But in, a, in an overall Christian way, let's say, of a spiritual type of thing, rather than just dwelling on the Sabbath over here or the Holy Days over here or something else over here, this gives you the overview of why we got to get back to the truth. So we want to understand that. I hope all of you will use this. Now, brethren, Satan will do anything he can to confuse you. And he will do anything he can to confuse the world. And he's done a very good job of it, of course. As it says in Revelation 12, verse 9, all nations have been deceived by Satan the devil. Revelation 12, verse 9. Most of you know that. We've cited many other references. But he's done a masterful job because he is the master deceiver. And one of the key things he uses to deceive people is to get them mixed up about God's law. 
He hates God's law. He will let you believe in another Jesus, a whole different concept of Jesus, little Lord Jesus away in a manger, mother and child, mother and child, and get sentimental about that little Jesus. But if you hear about the Christ of the Bible or the Christ of the book of Revelation who's coming back as King of kings, the Lord of lords, most of them don't like to talk about that very much. They want to hear about little Lord Jesus. That's less threatening. So that's fine with Satan as long as you don't keep God's law. It's fine with Jesus if you get sentimental about things or about God being your father or loving your neighbor. Or, you know, you, read the, you reach the, uh, read the things in the religious sections of the paper and often they'll tell you and, and you know, the response in letters coming in. Well, the main thing is just to love your neighbor and practice the golden rule. Isn't that the only thing, the main thing? That's what they generally always say. No, that's not the main thing. That's good. But the first thing is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and strength and mind. That is the first and great commandment. Matthew 22, verses 35 to 40. And the second commandment is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But you cannot love your neighbor as yourself and you won't love your neighbor as yourself unless you have a right contact with that great God and have His Spirit in you to help you to love your neighbor as yourself and have the whole concept of this true God and God living His life in you and God having made your neighbor men and women, not men looking down on women as sex objects as they often do in our society today and taking advantage of them and so on. I was talking to my wife, and I've talked to some of you, I guess, too. It's, it's a topic way back in my day, uh, and I'm talking about the 1930s and 40s and early 50s. We had actresses, and uh, Ingrid Bergman, and, of course, in that movie, uh, Gone with the Wind, Vivian Leigh, and so many of them, boy, they would, really, they would really act, you know, and go through the part. They had good minds and good personalities. And today, about 90% of the time in the motion pictures, what is the woman? She's simply a sex object. And the men are out fighting or they're having a car chase or an airplane chase or doing something. And here's the woman over here. And that's about all she is. She doesn't have to act very much. She just has to look pretty and so on. They have this wrong concept. They're in the woman's feminism. And yet the feminism has backfired somehow. And Satan is able to use both those approaches to destroy the family. He's doing a very good job of that. But if you recognize that every woman is made in the image of God Almighty and every woman has a potential to be a full child of God in God's kingdom, a spirit being in a few years, as I've told some of our ministers even and some of uh, you in past sermons, of course, be good to your wife, you men, all you men around the world, because she might be your boss in a few years. I'm partly kidding, but partly serious. I don't know how it's going to work out, but some of the women are going to have a greater reward than some of the men because God is not prejudiced. He made both of us in His image. So we have to understand that and have deep respect for the opposite sex and for all human beings, whatever their race, whatever their educational background, whatever it is, every single human being. And unless you understand and know the true God, you won't have that love to love your neighbor as yourself. You're just kidding yourself. Billy Graham had a column. Well, let me look here first of all. What is God's definition then of sin? God tells us, of course, we're to repent of sin. And, of course, man has all kinds of ideas about sin, various ways of watering down God's law. Satan hates God's law. 
He's glad to have you sentimental about all kinds of things, but not to ever think you've got to obey that law. In 1 John, just before, again, Jude and the book of Revelation, 1 John 3, 4, the King James says, sin is, this is the biblical definition, just directly, you know, two and two is four. Sin is the transgression of the law. And through this whole book of 1 John, you know that, he's talking about the spiritual law of God. He's not talking about the law of physics or the law of something else. He's talking about the law of God. So that's a very important thing. And we've got to understand that sin is the transgression of the law. Interesting, this very morning, in this morning's Charlotte Observer, November 19th, 2005, this morning, Billy Graham's column appeared, and I often read it, not always, and they asked him, he has this column all across the United States, in my opinion. Well, that's true, it's his opinion. <laughs> it doesn't, it's not what the Bible says. I guess it's well, well titled. What is your definition of sin? I hear lots of people saying one thing or another is sin, but they don't always agree on what things are sinful, but I'd, I'd be interested in what you say. Of course, as I've told you, my old Methodist grandmother used to think sin was dancing and sin was playing cards and sin was going to a movie. And uh, she called sin, she called dancing, hugging set to music. <laughs> and kind of amused me when I was my mother yet sent me to uh, Marianne Hadley's dance studio when I was in junior high and we learned dancing. But misused, of course, it is. Misused it is. And the, she and the old Methodist ladies in the... Uh, WCTU, and she was president of that for a while, WCTU is the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Now, they don't teach temperance. They preach absolute uh, abstinence, of course, no alcohol at all. And they don't talk about, would you like some Cabernet Sauvignon? They say, stay away from booze <laughs> and Neiman rum and the liquor traffic and all that kind of thing. Anyone who trades the liquors in the liquor traffic of the way they say it, you know it's bad, even if you don't know what it, what it means. But this answer from Billy Graham, what is sin? He says, a sin is any thought or action that falls short of God's will. Well, you see what it means? You can say, well, that doesn't sound too bad. No, but Billy is missing the point. All kinds of people interpret God's will differently. So he makes it vague. God is perfect, and anything we do sh uh, short of this perfection is sin. So then what do you think? Oh, my, I can't be perfect, so why worry about it? We'll just do what we want to, and then Christ's blood will cover it. And then he goes on with more reasoning on that same thing. I don't want to read the whole column, but it never changes from that. He just says the Bible uses a number of examples or word pictures to illustrate this. It says sin is like an archer who misses the target and so on. And the same thing is true of sin. God's will is that we enter uh, the center of that target. When we sin, we fall short of his will or miss the mark and so on. And uh, But, you know, all kinds of things are not perfect, but they're not necessarily directly sin. You may eat something that is not as helpful as something else, but that's not sin in the sense of biblical sin at all. You may not do your very, very best if you're a member of, uh, let's say, the basketball team, but that doesn't mean you're a sinner. It means you're, you know, you all learn to do better and try to be perfect all the time and whatever you do, do with your might, but it's not actually sin. But he has all kinds of reasoning, but he never, ever refers to the direct definition. That would be like someone... Ask, being asked, what is two and two? 
well, two and two is such and such, and you go all around the mulberry bush, and you never come up with how you get to the right answer. Satan is very clever, and here he's got the icon of American Protestantism reasoning around about what sin is. A few months ago, of course, they asked him about prophecy and Christ coming, and I didn't bring that clipping, but in his written clipping, he said, well, Christ coming might be tonight, or he said, on the other hand, it might be 1,000 years from tonight. Oh, a little bit of a stretch there. Tonight or 1,000 years. Now, how come Billy doesn't understand anything better than that? Because God says, a good understanding have all who keep his commandments. God gives understanding of prophecy. God gives understanding of the whole purpose of human existence if we keep his commandments. But Billy skates. Some people might say, well, Billy doesn't know about that verse. No, he does know about that verse. He's talked in his autobiography and other statements. He's read and read the Bible. Of course he knows. He knows the Seventh-day Adventists teach that. There are about apparently 25 million of them. He knows we teach that. He's read our stuff. He talked to Mr. Armstrong on the phone when Mr. Armstrong was over there with Mr. Lambert and Harris department store and congratulated him. He said, well, your, your strength is prophecy, Mr. Armstrong. And, and uh, so he's obviously read our stuff. Not that they've never read the Bible, just they're blinded, of course. Billy means well, but he's blinded. But this is a dangerous cop-out, brethren. A dangerous cop-out. Because people are misled by that. Never get the point that there is a specific thing that is sin and you've got to repent of that to be in God's kingdom and on the contrary build that specific way of life into your character or you will never, never, ever be fit to live forever in the kingdom of God. You say, well, we're just missing the mark and let's all decide what we think God's will is and be very gentle about it. No, God doesn't generalize. God's pretty specific on these things. Notice First John 2 now. First John chapter 2, verse 3. Now, by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. How do you know God? You know God, my brethren, if you start keeping and following what? Apostolic Christianity. If you follow that way of life based on God's commandments, then by experiencing that way of life, by experiencing Christ living in you, you become to know God. You know what God is like. You understand God's mind and God's character by that very process. He who says, I know him, verse 4, and does not keep his commandments is a liar. That's not my words. That's the beloved apostle, Jesus' favorite apostle. It's a liar. And the truth is not in him. There it is again, the truth, the truth. Who has the truth? But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. That's the whole point. If you have God's Word and you live by the Word of God, to the degree you live by it, you will have God's love in you. That doesn't mean, of course, we all do that perfectly because we don't. But that's the principle. And uh, so the love of God is perfected in Him. By this we know that we are in Him. We're in union with God. He who says he abides in Him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. And God in the flesh set us an example. And when God emptied himself from the tremendous power and glory he had, what did he do as he became a human being? He came down as a Jew. He didn't come down as a Chinaman and practice, you know, some kind of Buddhism or some other Confucianism or something. 
He didn't come down in some other type of thing. He came down as a Jew because they were his people. He'd been the God of the Old Testament and they at least kept the letter of the law. Some of them, some of the time, had that way of life and he kept that. He regularly, as you know, kept the Sabbath. He regularly kept the annual holy days. He regularly observed the clean and unclean meats. He regularly taught and practiced the Jews' cleansing. He didn't overdo it. Some of them did that. They had to, you know, wash before every, pick up every snack and everything. But he set the right example. He showed how marriage was binding. And if you divorce your wife and marry another, you're committing adultery. And he spelled all that out, a whole way of life, about happy marriage, about children, about family, about how to love God and how to love yourself, your neighbor in the right way. So that's so important. He who says he abides in Christ ought himself also to walk just as he walked. That's so important. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment. Oh, John says, I'm going back and what I'm writing to you is old. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. The beginning of what? Every indication is the beginning of Christianity. I don't think he's referring back to Genesis. If you read the book of John, he uses that kind of expression two or three times and he's talking about Christ and the beginning because here's this old apostle, the last one still alive, and all the others were dead. And in the beginning of Christianity, they did believe and practice God's law, of course, and uh, that was their way of life. So that's very, very important. 1 John 5, no, chapter 3 now. 1 John 3, here's this favorite apostle of Jesus, verse 22. How do you get your prayers answered? One way, whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Why? Because we keep His commandments, plural. What's the antecedent of that? Is it some new commandments of Jesus? No, look up in verse 4. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward who? God not some new commandments of Jesus or anyone else. God is the antecedent. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him, God, if we keep His, God's commandments, and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And God tells us the things that are pleasing in His sight all the way through the Bible, of course. How to love God, how to love our neighbor, how to have good families, how to be a good neighbor, how to uh, you know, conduct yourself in business, how to help the poor, how to be merciful. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Hundreds of things like that in God's Word. It's a way of life, a real way of life, not just sentiment, but specific examples spelling it out. And now we go to Revelation, Revelation chapter 14. And here these were written by John, as you know too. Everyone acknowledges, as far as I know, he wrote this book, Revelation 14, verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Not the patience of the Catholics or Protestants, but the patience of God's true saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God, not of new commandments, but the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Or to not just have faith in Jesus, but the very faith of Jesus, that absolute sense of knowing, that total confidence in God. So we'll do what God says regardless. Back in chapter 22... Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed are those at the very end of the Bible, he says, who keep his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs, which sometimes refer to homosexuals, sorcerers, sexually immoral, people that treat sex cheaply. They won't be there. They won't be there at all. And lots of you young people 
are getting into kind of the movies and TV watching and pornography on the Internet and other stuff where you have this whole wrong concept and you treat sex cheaply, sexually immoral. They won't be there and murders and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. God does not appreciate people who lie or who lie in the name of religion or any other way as these false ministers do. That's a terrible thing in God's sight. If you can't rely on God's word, you can't rely on anything. Well, God's a liar. He says, I'll save you. And you get right up to the time of the resurrection and he laughs and says, big joke, April fool. I'm not going to save you after all. I'll put you in the lake of fire or dangle you over the edge of the earth or something. You know what I mean? No, we have to have confidence in God as we see him do what he said he would do and guide world events and guide our lives. We know that he is there and he does do these things. And we build that confidence in Him. All right, that's so important. This basic principle of being willing to do what God said and His law, the law of God expressed in the Ten Commandments and in the statutes, brethren, because frankly, when you understand it, of course, the statutes are simply the spelling out of God's law in the letter, not in the spiritual sense, but it's good to read those statutes in the middle chapters of, uh, of uh, Leviticus. And in Deuteronomy chapter 12 all the way through chapter 28, you find the statutes of God over and over through there. It tells you if you find a bird's nest, how do you move it? If you have to relieve yourself out in the campground, how do you do that? Little tiny things. If you have a, a flat roof and you're going to climb on it, put a railing around it so people don't fall off. You see, he lets you know the mind of God. And in those statutes are included, of course, the, work, the principles of tithing to tell you to do that, to tithe to God. The principle, of course, is revealed there, the law of God, spelled out in the statute and uh, circumcision. And yet the New Testament, of course, tells you that circumcision today is of the heart. It's not done away, but it is a matter of having your heart completely changed and having the foreskin of your heart cut off, as the New Testament expresses it. And then, of course, you have the holy days, if you look them up in those verse, those chapters, you know, they're part of the statutes. It's the Sabbath command, but then it's expanded because the Sabbath points to the one great creator God to show you who is God, the creator God. That's the biggest point. Yes, you need the day of rest too. But the big spiritual lesson is the creator. On back down through time, as you know, they've had all these different gods and God of this and God of that and something else. And God had revealed who God is. And you learn that by the Sabbath. And then, of course, you also learn that uh, there, the seventh day is a picture of the coming millennium. There's going to be a thousand-year millennium or day of rest for 1,000 years after Christ's return, a thousand-year day. And, of course, then there's the principle of physical rest and rejuvenation and going to church. All those things are involved in that command, we know. But it points out the one true God, the Creator God then the holy days are simply magnifications of the Sabbath command. And without those days, what does the world believe? Well, some of them believe Christ will never come back. He comes, just comes in your heart or the church is the kingdom or all kinds of concepts. And then others believe Christ may come tonight and they get sentimental and talk about that and they totally misunderstand prophecy. But if you have the holy days, it gives you the picture of God's plan and how he works out that plan, you see, in detail. And with the holy days, you understand overall the big purpose, plan of God and purpose of God. And as you keep those days, you become more and more aware 
of all that in your mind and heart. It's a way of life. It's not just technical stuff. It's a way of life. And as your heart becomes spiritually circumcised, then you come out of the world and you don't love the things of the world as much as you used to and gradually you focus on the spiritual things, the kingdom of God and know God as your father. And as you learn to love and honor your physical father, then you will tend to love and honor your spiritual father a lot more and so on. All those things become a way of life. But if you separate those things from God's law, then everyone comes in with their opinions and they have all these counselors and these Christian psychologists and they, do they have all error? No, no. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a mixture of good and evil. When you read these books by these so-called Christians who don't know God, they have some good in there, but they mislead people tremendously because they leave out the true knowledge of the true God and they don't understand the overall plan revealed through the holy days and the rest of the Bible and they don't even understand the ultimate purpose of human existence that God is reproducing himself. That's why he wants us to have his law written in our hearts and minds and inward parts because the law of God is a reflection of God's very character. It's what he is, the way he functions. And when we understand that and begin to live that, then we begin to commune with God. We begin to walk with God. We begin to fellowship literally fellowship with God and with Christ, then with our hand in God's hand, so to speak, living that whole way of life, it'll be so easy to walk right on over into the kingdom, you see, and be given a spirit body with total power because we'll have shown God for five or 25 or 45 or more years. And I've been in the church about 56 years and I'm still working on it. So yet some of you need to go away ways yet, and so do I. But, you know, you've got to keep working and working on it with God's help. And God has to do it in you. You can't do it yourself. Whenever I try to do it myself, I fall flat. I've got to let Christ do it within me. But we've got to do that. Then we're fit to live eternally in God's kingdom and family because we let Him impregnate us with part of His very nature, His very character as full sons of God. What a magnificent thing when you understand it, the whole plan and purpose. But when men try to water down God's law and when they say, well, you don't have to really keep the commandments and sin is, well, not being perfect. And if you don't do the perfect will of God, then you're sinning. And they think, well, what's that? We're not sure. So let's give up and quit. Generalize it. Monkey around with it. Muddy up the waters. No, you're confusing people when you do that. Are you sincere? Some of these people, I suppose, are very sincere but they're really messing people's minds up so they don't know the real God and they will never, never, ever learn the purpose of human existence by that stuff. As I've told you before, and you brethren around the world, when I grew up in the Methodist church, my old Methodist grandmother, whom I loved and still love, she was my favorite uh, of all my grandparents and she was one of my favorite people in my whole life. She helped me a lot. But she was not called and she tried to teach me about God and she did give me a certain zeal for the Word of God, frankly. And her attitude of service and things like that was something that's always stuck with me. But she used to bring me over and when I would come over as a teenager to get away from home and so on and be over in Grandma's house to get tea and sympathy. If I got frustrated at home, I'd go over there and Grandma would give me uh, uh, hot chocolate and cookies, you know. And uh, I would stomp out of the house like a teenager sometimes upset. My mother kept saying, do this and do that and do that. i got to get out of here. So I'd go over to Grandma's and pretty soon I'd hear the phone ring. And, and uh, I could hear Grandma around the corner. She'd say, yes, Roderick is here. 
he's okay. Yes, he'll be here with me. <laughs> My mother was calling, wondering what happened to her 10 or 12-year-old boy. I was over there with Grandma, and Grandma would read passages from the Bible to me, which are very helpful, but most of it she kept trying to get me to read the upper room. And I did read the upper room many times, probably dozens of times, and it was a little kind of a a little kind of a brochure type thing about the size of these cards. And in the little upper room was four pages or six pages or whatever it was. They'd get this thing out, I guess, every month. They had a new upper room, they called it, based on the idea that Jesus' apostles, you know, went in that upper room while they were waiting for the Holy Spirit. And so they would have a little uh, lesson every day. And so you would read... uh, uh, about something about the zeal of the Lord of hosts. And they'd have a little scripture saying something like that, just part of the verse, sometimes not even the whole verse. And then you'd read about the uh, English explorer, uh, Stanley, this investigative reporter, and he would go into darkest Africa, and he was looking for uh, Dr. Livingston, you know, this missionary who disappeared there. And you know that famous story. He came into this clearing and saw this old man. And he said, Dr. Livingston, I presume. <laughs> and that's the famous statement in literature. And they say he kept on and tell the story. He kept on through jungles. He went down this uh, crocodile infested river. And he came through this dangerous trail. And finally he came into the clearing. And there was Dr. Livingston. As Stanley kept on and did not give and quit, so we, my friends, have got to keep on in our squawk with God and love God and not give up and quit. Amen. End of the story. How nice. Well, it would be nice if they gave you the whole truth of God about the commandments, the Sabbath, the holy days, the plan of God, the prophecies, and everything else. But they never, ever, ever, ever do that. It's just one sentimental story after another sentimental story after another sentimental story. And you could read that until your your eyes drop right out of your head, as I told my grandmother one time. (laughs) And you would never, ever understand the truth of God, you know, or the purpose of human existence. And that's the way it is with a lot of that stuff. Satan is very clever and very clever. He doesn't come at you and say, well, I'm going to tell you something bad. He seems to be telling you something good, but it's empty. It's empty. It's like a puff of air. You read it, well, that's sweet. Keep on. Keep on what? Well, you're never told what and how and, you know, the real purpose of life. So they try to get around God's law because Satan will be glad to have you join this church to be sentimental about your neighbor. He's glad to have you join that church to be sentimental about God maybe and clap your hands and sing and say amen and holy, holy or fall over backward under the power of the Spirit. Or he's glad to have you join this old church and go through rituals and speak in Latin and all that kind of thing and have some priest and smoke and incense. He's glad to have you do all that. But he is not glad to have you in a church that teaches you the law of God and that Christ is to live that law in you through the Holy Spirit so you begin to develop by letting God develop in you the very character of God. Because if you develop the very character of God, and I develop the very character of God, that's a danger. That means we're that much closer to replacing Satan and his demons and ruling this world. And Satan can't stand that. He does not want you to be part of the family of God. He wants to destroy the baby before it's ever born, so to speak. So he'll try to twist and turn and turn and twist and destroy that knowledge of the importance and the meaning of God's law. They can call it Christianity all they want. It is not Christianity. It is paganism with the name Christian stamped on the outside unless it is talking about 
the very way of God. And the basic part of that way is based on, of course, the law of God. Turn with me back to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Beginning here in verse 5, Paul wrote, For those who live according to the flesh, and of course that's all these people in the world, and some of us do that too much of the time, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. If you get to talking to someone even in the church, and all they can talk about is hunting and fishing and sports and TV, and you know, after a while it may dawn on you, a light will go on the boat, this is a nice person, I like them, but they can't seem to talk about spiritual things. I remember Mr. Armstrong loved a couple of men way back in the early days of the church that were related to him. It's not his son, someone else, you don't know them. But he'd ordained them deacons and he thought they were converted. And about the time I graduated, or maybe a year after, it doesn't make any difference, I said, well, Mr. Armstrong, uh, John and Jack are not really converted. That was not their names, by the way. I'm not trying to indict anyone. But he said, what do you mean, Rod? They're already deacons. I said, well, Mr. Armstrong, I like them. And I loved them, and I did. They were very nice to me personally, and I kidded around with them and played ping pong with them and did things, and I thought they were nice guys. But I said, I've tried many times, and I've talked to some of the other students, and you can't talk spiritual things to them. They like you personally, and they're all part of the enterprise, but they don't really understand at all. Well, years later, something came up, and I had to kick them both out of the church. (laughs) And he said, Rod... He said, you may have thought I'd forgotten what you said back there, but I remembered and you were right. <laughs> That's one of the times he let me know I was right. They weren't, they weren't converted at all. And I could see that because you couldn't. They were nice, nice guys, masculine. But they could not talk about the Bible. Their mind was always on physical things. That's all it was on. So those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. That's all they talk about. Think about it. For to be carnally minded is death. Does carnal mean unusually evil? No. As you know, there's chili con carne in Spanish. Carnal means simply fleshly. It doesn't mean unusually evil. It just means normal of this physical life. All the people around the world. To be carnally minded is death. You you can't get into the kingdom of God. You're not going to have eternal life if you just live that kind of a normal life. You have to have Christ living His life within you. You've got to get God pronounced, perform the new covenant in you which means to put His law in your heart and mind and inward parts. You know the scripture on that back in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. Referring back to Jeremiah. Yes, the law of God has to be put in your heart and mind and inward parts, you see. But it leads to death to be just carnal-minded. But to be spiritually-minded is life and peace because the carnal mind, the normal mind of man, is enmity against God. Why? That's a big key. The Protestants don't like this verse. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. The carnal mind doesn't want God's law. The carnal mind doesn't want a God who will tell it what to do. The carnal mind doesn't want God butting his nose in their sex life. The carnal mind doesn't want God butting his nose in their alcoholism or their, their drinking habits. The carnal mind doesn't want God telling them which day they have to keep and they have to give up their job if if they have to get Sabbath off. The carnal mind doesn't like any of those things and all these other things, if you follow me. The carnal mind doesn't like that. 
So the carnal mind is enmity against God just automatically. The God will tell me what to do and then they get their back up, as we say. Moffat translates it hostile. Mr. Armstrong used to use that translation. The carnal mind is hostile. Hostile against God. A hostility is there. Just a natural resentment. I don't want God telling me what to do. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That's the carnal mind. And of course, the carnal mind leads to death. So Satan has deceived hundreds of millions of people, actually billions of people, and of course thousands and hundreds of thousands of ministers and priests down through the centuries and are falling into this trap of hostility against God's law and not letting God, not wanting God to put His very law, His very character in us in that way, deceiving them. They're not all meaning to be bad, but Satan has caused them to be that way through deception. Turn back to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. And let's review just a few things here. That's so basic, this entire apostolic Christianity. What's this all about? You go back to uh, Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. That's what we're supposed to be. The salt loses its flavor. What's it good for? We're to be special, zealous, you see. Verse 14. You're the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. So you've got to give light to the world by the way you live. You can't just live like they do. You've got to stand out by being different, by basing your life, really basing it on God's law. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Verse 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Christ did not come to do away with any of that. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And fulfill means to fill to the full. And as I remember, we have at the bottom, in the back page of your uh, bulletin, a wonderful quote from Mr. John O'Gwen, his uh, article in the July-August Living Church News, uh, How Did Jesus Fulfill the Law? So on the back page of your bulletin, that's a wonderful explanation right there. He fulfilled it by living it, and that's what the Greek word means, to fill to the full. But that's a wonderful explanation, and it's absolutely true. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, one dotting the I or crossing the T, one little tiny marking of the Hebrew writing, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And ultimately, frankly, that indicates that finally everyone will be keeping God's law or they won't be there. They won't, they won't exist when you really understand the ultimate outcome of that. Whoever, therefore, doesn't mean anybody, doesn't say the Jew. Whoever, that's quite inclusive. Every human being, therefore, who breaks one of the least of these commandments is the Sabbath the least. What commandment is least? And when you understand the broader implications, if you break any of God's law just knowingly, even the statutes and so on, you're breaking in principle the commandment behind it. Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great. How to be great in God's kingdom? To do and to teach this way of life. And all of you have an opportunity as Christians as followers of the Christ, to do that with your friends, your neighbors, your workmates, to pray for them, to help them, to encourage them, to set that example. And then if they ask you, why does your life have such meaning? 
Why are you so excited about the prophecies or about the world news? Say, I would like, if you're interested, you'd have to be interested, John, but I can offer you a booklet that shows you the whole concept of true Christianity in a way that you have never understood before. Restoring Apostolic Christianity and see if they would like this booklet or you can have them write in or if some of you get extra copies and we'll try to send out and I might ask uh, Mr. Bonjour and Mr. Uh, Crockett, others with the mailing. I don't know if Mr. Bonjour is here. He may be out preaching somewhere else today. But at any rate, uh, get some copies to our ministers where they have extra copies of this. Maybe Mr. Bomer can take care of that. I think he's nodding. And we need to have them so they can have these out in the brethren's hands. If they run out of their copy, can get more of this out. But anyway, to be great in the kingdom, you're to do and teach even the least of God's commandments. Then he says, except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to show that you're not only not to murder, you're not even to hate. So you've got to learn to love your neighbor, and that includes respect. Back in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. The whole attitude of respect toward the opposite sex, respect toward the fact of sex that God made us male and female to have a family. And sex has to do with love and kindness and warmth and child rearing and child bearing and creating another unit of a family, potential gods. And if you separate sex from that and turn it into a bunny rabbits, then the boys are out trying to chase the female rabbits type thing. It cheapens everything. It cheapens God's whole purpose in recreating Himself. It's damnable, frankly. And that, that's what our society has done. You know that. You watch the average TV show or the ads in between and they're having women's breasts selling toothpicks and speedboats and airplanes and everything in between. Sex objects. That's what they're trying to make out of our wives and daughters and granddaughters. I can think of it a little bit more objectively than I used to because I've got a very pretty blonde-headed granddaughter. So see some young woman like that, I think, well, that's like Margie. That <laughs> gives me a better attitude. Here's her mama sitting here, you see. I have a young 25-and-a-half, 26-year-old granddaughter. But anyway, and two great-granddaughters. But uh, God looks down and we're all his granddaughters and great-granddaughters and sons and so on. And he looks at us in a different way. And we better learn to look at each other that way and look at each other and look at God from the point of view of His character, having His law in our hearts and minds and inward parts. So that's so important to God. Back in chapter 19, a young man came to Christ in verse 16, Good teacher, what things shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, but God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Again, that basic way of life a way of life. And of course, you get into all the other parts of it in this, in the, uh, throughout the whole Bible. Being spiritually circumcised and thinking of God's kingdom and having a right attitude toward marriage, a right attitude toward the opposite sex, a right attitude toward old people and young people and sick people and blind people and deaf people and wanting to help everybody made in God's image all based on God's Word. And God's Word is based on God's law. That's what apostolic Christianity is. It's called the way over and over in the book of Acts. And I don't have time for a sermon on that aspect of it. Notice chapter 28 now, brethren. Matthew 28. 
And in verse 18, Jesus came after His resurrection, after everything was supposedly nailed to the cross, and He said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Sometimes we don't think about Christ as much as we ought to. Man, He has all the authority there is. He is very God, the one who died for us with total authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them, notice, as they went out all over the earth after the cross, all nations, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. That's a message for us today. That same way of life. It was not to be changed, not to be watered down. The commandments were not to be done away, and so on. So very, very basic, but that's apostolic Christianity. And that certainly includes, when you understand the essence of, of chapter 5 here, includes the statutes too, even the least of the commandments, where you're in the right way in the Spirit. They're to be kept as well when you understand the Bible. They're going to be taught in the world tomorrow, as you read about in Ezekiel chapter 36. And brethren, I want you to notice this one thing I've written here in my notes, and I want you just to listen carefully. Through keeping and understanding the true Sabbath and the holy days, and of course all the commandments, we come to know the true God. We know that God, the Creator God, and the character that He's wanted to build in us. We come to know the true God. We know His mind, and we know His purpose. We know His purpose. The pagan Sunday, the day of the sun, you see, that whole approach to that, and, of course, the pagan holidays at Christmas time, as I grew up doing it, very familiar. I did it for 19 years. Little Lord Jesus away in a manger, mother and child, Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer, jingle bells, jingle bells, all fun, yes, but it completely obliterates the true knowledge of the true Christ and true God. It looks so innocent, but it is damnable because it cuts people off from that knowledge of the true God. Easter, the name of the pagan goddess of sex and fertility, Ishtar, Astarte, all these other names for her in the spring. I've gone there and seen that in the pagan inscriptions when I was over in the Middle East. All that completely comes up with a different concept. And, of course, the very practice of Good Friday Easter completely destroys the identifying sign Jesus gave that He was the Messiah, that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, He would be or in the belly of the great fish, so Jesus would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, denying the very identifying sign of God, of the Messiah. And yet they think they're Christian. It shows how utterly blinded these people are. So we've got to understand that whole concept that God's law, God's Sabbath, God's holy days give us a true picture of God and of Christ and the whole purpose of human existence. That's why, that's why, it's so important to keep God's ways and to practice apostolic Christianity. Right across the page in Mark 1, Mark 1, now after John was put in prison, verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. That is the message, a coming government. And saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. As we know, the whole gospel is about God's coming kingdom, His government. And then you read back in Genesis 1, as I've shown you so many times in verse 26, God said, 
He created the heavens and the earth and recreated the animals and plants and so on. Then he said, let us, more than one, God the Father and the Logos, the spokesman who became Jesus, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion. Dominion means rule, government. From the very beginning, God wanted man to have rule and government. And so he created him in his image, male and female. Yes, the female as well. And God blessed them, said, be fruitful, multiply. Nothing wrong with that. Love each other in marriage, have children. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion, government over everything as we all know on this earth. And man is even letting or God is allowing man to explore the very inner fringes of outer space. Not very far out, frankly, when you look at the whole universe, but a tiny bit at least. Kind of a hint of what we may have later when we give our given spirit bodies. So we're made to have rule. We're made to be governors and leaders and kings. Do we have a government without law? What's the whole purpose of our lives? To become kings and priests. Remember, Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. He's made us to be kings and priests. Kings under Christ and the government of God. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. He who overcomes will be ruling over the nation, will be kings and priests under Christ. We don't rule without law. Again, the law of God is so very, very important on all those things. And that law, the commandments, the statutes, the judgments, that whole way of life is the basis, the foundation of true Christianity. And when you understand it the way I've just explained it, then all this other stuff looks good. Jingle bells, jingle bells, and the stores are filled with pretty trinkets and Christmas trees and blah, blah. It obliterates the whole true concept of the great God and the purpose he's working out here below. He is making us to be kings and priests. Back in 1 Corinthians, if you turn there, 1 Corinthians 6, he said here in verse 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That's why we're called to be rulers. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? A kingdom, a government without laws, not on your life. That's why as you read back in Micah chapter 4, that's why you read back in Isaiah chapter 2, that the law will go forth from Jerusalem and the way of the Lord. So we're to learn that way and we're to learn that law and all of its ramifications and we're to be able to explain that and, rec- and help people understand that. True Christianity. The original Christianity. We're the ones that have it. The Mormons don't have it. The Catholics don't have it. They perverted everything the original apostles did. Blasted it into smithereens. And the Protestants tried to pick up the pieces and go on. But they have essentially the same framework of paganism. They don't understand. Good people. Many of them my relatives and loved ones. But they do not understand. And God's mercy, we do. And let's appreciate that basic concept and try with all our hearts to restore apostolic Christianity. Turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3 and verse 7. Here's the last, next to last era of the church described, as you know, the church we're carrying on. We're the leftover Philadelphians over into the Laodicean era. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, true, who has the key of David. And that has to do with government. I may give a whole sermon on that later, but it certainly has to do with government. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works, 
See, I've set before you an open door. God has allowed us even to carry on through that door again. Right now, perhaps more than anyone else in the churches of God. And we're grateful for that. We're not bragging. We're very thankful. We seem to be going through more and more doors because we're the Philadelphians. And no one can shut it. Some people say the work is over. It is not over. It's just getting underway. As John Paul Jones said, I have just begun to fight. (laughs) You know, that battle. We have just begun to fight. And we're going to have a lot more power in years to come in finishing this work. So no one can shut it. For you have a little strength. Yeah, we have very little strength of ourselves. And we deeply understand that. But God is not limited. You've kept my word. That's the whole key. We want to do this and restore apostolic Christianity. And have not denied my name, Christ's authority, everything the true Christ really stood for. Indeed, I will make these synagogue of Satan, people come and worship before your feet and know I've loved you, false Christians and others, because you've kept my command to persevere. And brethren, we have. We've tried to hang on and not give up the basic truths we learned. Where did we learn those truths? Where? Think about it. All of you, all you brethren around the world, we learned them primarily through one dedicated man, not a perfect man, but a very dedicated man named Herbert W. Armstrong. And we need to appreciate that. Some of the various groups hardly ever mention his name. It's as though he did not exist. But they would not even have understood the Sabbath, the holy days, virtually anything they understand except for that man. He helped us understand a basic way of life. That way of life was touched upon by Mr. Lyons. Honoring your parents, building the family. That way of life was spoken on last week by me. You know, part of apostolic Christianity is trusting your God to be your healer. God is the healer. All that is part of God's way of life. So we've not denied Christ's name. So because you've kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial, the great tribulation, which will come upon the whole world. So this is definitely talking about the great tribulation to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast that you have, that no one may take your crown. And brethren, please do that. Hold fast that you have. Your brethren down in Perth, Australia, your brethren in Johannesburg and Cape Town, and your brethren all around the world, your brethren here, hold fast. Don't give up and quit. And remember how important it is to reflect this thing. Please, again, read and study and go over and learn to use this as a tool to help outsiders to understand the concept of restoring true Christianity, original Christianity, apostolic Christianity, that whole way of life, the way of Christ and the apostles. So let's constantly review that way and let's always emphasize in our talks among ourselves from time to time and when we talk to outsiders, this basic concept of apostolic Christianity, the original Christianity of Christ and the apostles. And let us also on our knees with God's help, try honestly, sincerely, heartfeltly to live that way of life that we may be in that kingdom and be those kings and priests and fulfill the purpose of our calling.